Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Now, on this show, we go through some of the more fascinating points in the long, long history of cannabis. And you should know before we get into it, I have zero prior knowledge of anything that Bean is about to tell me. He's done the research and written up the story, and he's going to tell me about it. We're going to smoke some weed, learn a little something new about cannabis, and we're going to have a good time. So come join us. Uh, Bean, what do you got for us today? Actually, today's uh, story is about somebody you and I had a chance to spend some time with um, and who is an icon of uh, the marijuana movement, the cannabis movement in all its forms, and uh, who passed on pretty recently in the last uh, couple months. Now, we've been lucky enough to meet quite a few cannabis icons together, which you know I feel really fortunate about. But I do know the one you're talking about. It's somebody that we lost not too long ago and somebody that was extremely impactful when it came to bringing about sensible medical marijuana access here in California. I think you're talking about the man Dennis Perone. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're we're here to celebrate his life. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And it's obviously uh, a time to mourn his passing as well. But he was certainly somebody who uh, I think the lesson of this. And I, I learned so much researching this story. Somebody who I, I, you know, I didn't say I know him well, but I met and talked with him a few times as a High Times reporter had interviewed him. Uh, we shot the episode of Bong Appetit mm-hmm. at his cool, amazing spot. You, you remember the castle? The Castro Castle, of course. And I mean, a, a place that is extremely vibrant and I think still resonates with the feelings of activism and of community that were all over the place in San Francisco, in the Bay Area at a certain time. And it was a really, really important time historically for cannabis here in the United States. Yeah. And the thing I really pulled away from his life is he saw a lot of hardship and tragedy and oppression. And he let his optimism and his belief in people uh, keep him motivated and keep him optimistic and keep him uh, pushing towards this freedom that we now enjoy. Um, so, you know, like I said, I just, I just think we're here to celebrate his life and his life had lots of tragedy in it. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, we're living in his dream. Yeah, seriously. And you know what? I've gotten to talk to the guy, fortunately, and I've gotten to learn a little bit about the impact he's had on medical cannabis, on cannabis out here. But other than that, I don't know that much about him, so I'm really stoked about this one. Let's learn about the cannabis legend, Dennis Perone. Okay. You think it's time to take I think a... it might be that time I've got this thing here. That appears to be like Small, a nice fatty joint. Cylindrical envelope filled with weed. <laughs> uh, if you are not quite there in your process, we advise you, of course, to hit pause and roll one up. But otherwise, this train is departing for a station called... Great moment in weed history. Okay, great. Let's do it. So, Bean, where did Dennis Perone come from? Yeah. He, well, that leads right into what I wrote. That's brilliant. Uh, 
Because I could have started at the middle. I could have started at That's the end. True. You know, <laughs> don't restrict me to the chronology. Well, why but it did work out this time. <laughs> lucky you, and lucky me. Um, although he would live to become almost synonymous with West Coast cannabis, Dennis Perone was born in the Bronx in 1946. No kidding, a New York City guy did not know that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I I think I uh, you know I'm an East Coast guy all the way. I you know he, I, I, he set off my uh, my New York dar a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, there's a New Yorkiness. He had the vibe about right? him, especially like that era. People who grew up in the Bronx in the 40s and 50s. There's just a way you carry your shoulders. Right, right, right. As if somebody is about to fight you at any moment. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For a guy who was very, very fun-loving and outgoing, he was a scrapper, as we're going to find out. Like, absolutely. Um, So he is the Italian-American son of a computer programmer and a homemaker who first tried cannabis as a teenager to relieve, quote, parental stress syndrome as he later put it. Right. So typical kid, basically, you know what I mean, came upon cannabis as a rebellious youth, and obviously it uh, flipped a couple switches in him. Yeah, first of all, it's just helping him deal with his, his parents. and um, But it's, you know, not it's still the early 60s, so there, there wasn't that much around, and it's pretty low quality in what's available in the Bronx in the, in the very early 60s. If he's a teenager... You know, it's like 61, 62 kind of. Um, so all of that changes, however, in 1967 when Dennis Perone is deployed for Vietnam. Right. So I remember him talking about this a little bit. That's crazy. Something that, you know, conscription, something that so many people his age dealt with, so many men his age, uh, against their will, in many, many cases, sent to war. Yeah, he was not... Uh... He was not going voluntarily. Um, But, in his own words, um, Saigon was filled with the sweet smell of marijuana. This is when he's just getting there. Uh, Ah, Southeast Asia. (laughs) But, so he's pretty, you know, he's not psyched on being uh, conscripted into war. Mm -hmm. Uh, But getting there and smelling tons of weed... uh, Takes the edge off. Takes the edge off. Um, The day I arrived, I saw lots of American soldiers turning on, smoking pot all over the place. Right. So, you know, that's a very familiar story you hear about, uh, you know, soldiers in Vietnam, U.S. soldiers uh, getting into that local Southeast Asian cannabis. And then, in fact, at a certain point, bringing it back or being involved uh, in the clandestine importation of cannabis from Southeast Asia back to the U.S., Allegedly. Allegedly. And, uh, you know, we also know now these guys, guys and women, um, were treating their PTSD as well. You know, uh, less was understood about PTSD then. Little was understood about cannabis as a treatment for it. But um, I think when we hear all these stories about how much cannabis was being smoked by these soldiers, they understood it worked. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, and I think that's... You know, it touches on such an important point. I mean, this was decades ago, and we really still have not mitigated this. You know, that soldiers, you know, are are, are subject to such insane traumas. And for the longest time in the U.S., they would come back, and among many, many other injustices, 
they would lose their medical VA benefits if they tested positive for cannabis. And that is so like deeply unjust and wrong in my mind. You know what I mean? Because literally this is something that I personally treated my own PTSD with cannabis successfully, I feel. You know what I mean? So to see people who face traumas far worse than I did not being allowed to use medical cannabis, I mean, it's it's infuriating. Yeah, and the other thing is the PTSD, we've never acknowledged how helpful this is. It goes back so far, you know, like the military should have been looking at what was going on and they saw, oh my God, we're losing control of their smoke and dope and blah, blah, blah. And what they should have been thinking in a rational society is, well, what's underpinning this behavior? Um, because it is a huge epidemic, you know. Um, we're losing 22 uh, veterans a day just to suicide. Um, the alternatives that they're given are these pharmaceutical drugs that, you know, not only don't work, but they're really dangerous. Mm-hmm. But um, they make lots of money for companies peddling them, uh, essentially taking government money for drugs that aren't helping these vets. I mean, it's it's an incredible tragedy. And it's sad that we still have not come around on this issue that was won when Dennis Barone was in the military, you know, during Vietnam. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so cannabis proves to be the saving grace of a really horrific situation for him. Um, a closeted homosexual at the time and a committed pacifist, Perón found himself in the middle of some of the Vietnam conflict's heaviest fighting uh, at a time when the U.S. military was suffering staggering casualties. So he's in the shit of the shit. Um, so he's like, even in even for Vietnam, the, the places he's uh, being deployed are like brutal. And the time period, you know, um, and and he's a pacifist and he, he basically tells them he's going to refuse to fight. And he kind of implies uh, I would be as likely to kill my commanding officer as any other Vietnamese soldier. He, he does not want to kill people. Right. Uh, so uh, they put him to work stacking bodies in the morgue. Wow, that's dark. Yeah. That's a crazy kind of, you know, dark poetry. You know, that, that that's like a weird twisted punishment for a guy who is clearly a pacifist, you know? Yeah, he was able to convince them, I'm not going to be useful to you in killing people. So they put him on the back end of the, you know, operation. Yeah. Uh, so he he said to uh, to David Downs, a journalist, just want to shout him out because it's his his interview. Um, I was 20 years old. I'd never seen a dead person. That month I saw 25,000 dead people. I came out of my closet and found out who I was. And that's the other thing. His, his sexuality is... Uh, has to be kept a secret and is a threat to him in some way you know and his other outlet the weed is not you know certainly not officially sanctioned it sounds like people were pretty open about it but he's on the wrong side of everything at this point he's on the wrong side of everything so uh as the tet offensive raged on around him and the death count climbed perone consoled himself with the region's plentiful 
potent local cannabis and lost his virginity in a bunker with a fellow soldier. No kidding. So so this is obviously like, despite the horrors of war, it's a transformative time for him. He's smoking a lot of cannabis. He discovers his sexuality in some ways. He, you know, discovers romance in some ways. And yet it's a really intense time. There's carnage all around him. Yeah. I mean, like he says, I, I came out of my closet and found out who I was. Like he's obviously like I should live for now. Yeah. Um. Uh, so after he serves another year in Vietnam uh, and manages to get home in one piece, he's discharged in December 1969. And as a parting gift, uh, he stuffed two pounds of the highest grade weed he could find in Vietnam into an Air Force duffel bag and smuggles it back home. Two pounds, man. I guess they weren't checking soldiers super hard back then <laughs> coming back in. And I guess, I mean, that is, you know, I've heard lots of stories about how Southeast Asian cannabis tie stick is one of the more famous sort of stories. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that cannabis ended up back in the U.S. because it came, you know, in the hands of soldiers in the bags, duffel bags of soldiers and on cargo ships returning. You know what I mean? There's a lot of extra room on those. Yeah, there were. Uh, it was uh, the weed was from Thailand too. Mm. Right, right. Like he got the best local stuff he could, which was actually coming in from Thailand. No kidding. Better weed than you could get in Cali at the time, for sure. Right. I mean, sixty nine. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, and still at that time, homegrown was a derisive term. Because you couldn't get really good seeds that would be acclimated to grow in California. So you'd be able to grow plants and you'd get some spindly, you know, not, you know, very, very low THC buds off of them. Right. But it was definitely like well into the 70s before homegrown had a good connotation to it. To it. Yeah. Right. Huh. And part of it is not only did the weed come back from Southeast Asia, but seeds uh, from there and then increasingly like from Nepal and India uh, as people traveled and brought back seeds and made hybrids. Um, but we're still, yeah, well before that. He's got he's back from Vietnam and he's got the fire. Right. Like two pounds and it's hard, still hard to find. And he's got the best weed running. Yeah. Um, so the proceeds from selling off those two ounces helped Dennis Perone uh, get settled in San Francisco and start a new life for himself in the American city best known as a stronghold for gays and hippies. Right. So he's home now. I mean, he's in a much friendlier environment. He can be openly gay. He can be openly a stoner. Uh, and he's surrounded by like-minded people. Yes. And he is no longer working in a morgue. Things are... Nor in Vietnam. Nor in Vietnam. Things are looking up. Um, but, uh, you know, deeply scarred by his experiences in Vietnam, he vowed to live fearlessly and pursue happiness with a vigor. After that, I'm never going to be afraid. Um, and, man, he is a, was a fearless person, as we're going to see. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's sometimes what it takes, I think, to make change. Mm -hmm. So here we go. I mean, we've got the building blocks for a person who's going to stand up. You know what I'm saying? And we're I think we're about to see him start standing up. Yeah. So 
Um, he sets up a crash pad kind of commune. Uh, you know, it's San Francisco in the late 60s, early 70s. So, so this is perhaps an early iteration of something like the Castro Castle, right? Mm-hmm. Very much so. And I think he always sort of had things like that going. He loved people. You know what I mean? He was somebody who had a lot of people in his life and around him and was a community leader. You know, you're not a community leader if you're not really in the mix. So um, he's got this crash pad and he uses it as a base of operations for Big Top, which is like kind of like a a weed dealing salon where uh, people come over, they hang out, people mix, he introduces people and then they happen to buy some weed on the way out um mm. and it's a it's kind of that sort of a place uh oh, that's dope yeah, yeah. That's, what a, what an awesome place i mean historically you can like you know look back on a lot of probably really cool weed parties that go back thousands and thousands of years i mean that's one from recent history that you want to be at you know what i mean what an interesting time for weed and for activism and for music and for so many other things you know centered on this place yeah, so much is going on in, in the country and then in San Francisco specifically, mm-hmm. um, and he's right at the heart of it. So uh, by 1974, uh, the operation expands to include the island, uh, which is a shabby chic vegetarian health food restaurant in the heart of the Castro, uh, which is San Francisco's predominantly gay neighborhood where he still lived uh, to the end of his life. Um And at this restaurant, each patron was greeted with a free joint prior to sitting down to eat. How convenient. Yeah, that is convenient. Yeah, that service. They're like, ah, there's a 15-minute wait. Here, become hungry, you know, while you wait. (laughs) That (laughs) solves two problems. Yeah, seriously. One is, you know, this restaurant got really popular. We're not quite sure. The food's good. Yeah. The service is okay. We're not yeah. quite sure what makes this uh, such a popular restaurant. Yeah. and But seriously, shout out California for being one of the few places in the world, really, where you can wait online for something and get high. You know what I mean? Like, not a lot of places in the world where you can do that. And here, it's, like, fairly tolerated. You can stand on the street, wait in line for movie tickets and smoke a blunt with your friend. You know what I mean? That's fucking great. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, if you live somewhere and you're not quite there yet, we've been where you are and you're going to get where we are. Yeah. You know. Or come to California. Come to California (laughs) as former governor. Uh, So, uh, in the meantime, uh, Dennis Perone says, it was the only restaurant in the world uh, where pot smoking was not just allowed, but nearly mandatory. <laughs> so people are just blazing up. Um, so while the restaurant hummed downstairs, the Big Top's expanded retail space turned the upstairs into a three-ring cannabis dealing emporium. Wow, so insane. So this is basically a speakeasy dispensary. Yeah, with a swinging restaurant downstairs where you can blaze. Baller. Super baller. Also, I snuck a, a circus pun in there. I don't know if you heard it. What was it? It's called the Big Top, and I said it's a three-ring cannabis dealing emporium. Mm. If you don't notice, then that I, was then I win. Yeah. Fresh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> somebody open a fresh can of pun. <laughs> uh, so. This is uh, him talking about this place, which, yeah, was sounds pretty ideal. 
Uh, it was kind of one-stop shopping. We had big baskets of pot. There was no waiting. Um, you could tell the hostess what you wanted, and they would give it to you, Colombian, Cambodian, whatever. It was like a dream, and people loved it. Ah, that's so great. See, this is uh, before all those pesky regulations come <laughs> and ruin things for people. It's like, you know, like shit is really chill. You know what I mean? And I definitely don't get the feeling that um, things the movie's about to take a dark turn. Oh, no, wait. Uh-oh. Yeah, I mean, you know, they didn't uh, they didn't love him that much, everybody. Oh, you know? shit. So we're about to run into that familiar dark character, villainous fiend from all cannabis stories, the man. Uh, the cue the man. Dun, dun. And he's like, <laughs> and these these guys are uh, fucking dicks, you know, Shit. as we'll see. So what yeah. happened? So so one another cool thing was uh, if you wanted to buy weed from him or if you wanted to go to his weed friendly restaurant, you had to prove you were registered to vote or you had to register to vote right on the spot. Oh, that's cool. So like he always saw this as he saw growing weed as political he saw selling weed as political and he wanted political people to get stoned and he wanted stoned people to, to get, get into political po- yeah. yeah man that's really dope that's like uh definitely one of the a progressive move because at the time you know cannabis activism wasn't nearly what it became right i mean it was just it's in its earliest stages really yeah, I mean, people have always kind of pushed back as best they could, but this is really, you know, along with a lot of other changes in the country, um, this is a moment of a, of political uh, upheaval, and the pot uh, movement is a part of that, um, and he saw it as not just the issue of legalization, but the issue of liberation of oneself and of politics. Um, so he, you know, the idea of intersectionality, the idea that like you're being oppressed because you smoke pot, but you're being oppressed in other ways and they're all interconnected. Um, and I think he saw that very clearly um, because of his life experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he learned to be skeptical and discerning and saw firsthand evidence that the institutions that govern us are not fundamentally just. No, far from it. Um, so in addition to his work uh, as part of the cannabis liberation movement, uh, Dennis was also deeply involved in San Francisco's push for gay rights. Uh, in fact, during his run for San Francisco Board of Supervisors, Harvey Milk, who would become the first openly gay person elected to public office in California, uh, set up his campaign headquarters in a smoke-filled back room at the island. So, like, you know, he was a scrappy political upstart. He, he didn't have, like, the political machine behind him. He was challenging the political right. machine. And this was his community. And this was his community. And, 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 and... Uh, he also, you know, he liked pot himself. So, right. Uh, where better to be? Um, so cue cue the man. 
The man. Now. Shit's about to get ugly. Things are about to get ugly. So in uh, July uh, 1977, just months before this election that Harvey Milk is running in, uh, the San Francisco Narcotics Squad showed up unannounced and in full force at Perone's Pot Paradise, determined to shut it down. They seized 200 pounds of cannabis and $8,000 in cash. I thought you were going to say, and ate all the mini croissants. (laughs) (laughs) They probably did that too. (laughs) Have you ever seen the video of the cops that they raid the dispensary and they eat the edibles? I have. And you know what that video is evidence of more than anything is that cops, when they're just hanging around, are a bunch of fucking assholes. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, seriously, like, they're so dickish in that video. Just besides the fact that they're stealing edibles from a raid, they're still like so you even remove all that and they're just still such dicks. You know what I mean? And you're like, ah, fuck them. Yeah, they I mean they they shit talk a disabled woman. Yeah. In that video. They're not nice people. You know, it's like, could you be a good cop who's like, uh, you know, I don't wish I wasn't busting you guys, but I am gonna take a couple of infused snacks home. Maybe. It's still not cool. If he busted the place, yeah. fuck him yeah, <laughs> or her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but these were not they. Um, so these guys. Um, so during the raid, uh, Dennis Perone was shot in the leg, shattering his femur. Um, oh, shit. He was shot. Yeah. Good grief. So this raid was not like a. A mellow raid by any means. They came in guns blazing. They came in guns blazing. Well, they shot him, you know, like, uh, yeah. So he's shot in the leg, uh, shattering his femur. But after the horrors of Vietnam, he always claimed the police couldn't scare him. In fact, he continued to sell cannabis from his bedside while recovering at St. Joseph Hospital. No shit, really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like maybe not wait all the time, but like he could, he was still hooking people up. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Selling weed from the hospital bed. <laughs> that's actually my healthcare plan uh, that we get for the show. That the the great moments in weed history <laughs> healthcare plan is you get like a zip a day that you can yeah. sell to to yeah. defray costs. Our you know our great moments in weed history doctor just says put some weed on it. You know, <laughs> that's like. We're just like, ah, doctor, it hurts when I go like this. And he's like, put some weed on it. You're going to be good. Yeah. You know? And he's right most of the time. That's, he's got a, he, he's, he's in the 90 percentile with just that. Um, so he's, he's uh, slanging sacks of weed from his hospital bed. Can't stop. Yeah, but can't then stop the hustle. Cannot stop the hustle. So uh, then he, the case goes to trial. And during a break in the trial, uh, Perone approached the officer who shot him, and he says, this is Perone to the officer, uh, hey, sweetheart, I like your shoes, which is like this virulently like <laughs> macho cop. Yeah. And that was like, he was not, for everything he'd been through and everything they put him through, he, he didn't come from a place of anger. Right, and, right. And I think that's what made him so effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. No, that's crazy to 
That's like real, like high level ball breaking. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's Bron. That's the Bron. That's somebody who was born in the Bronx in 1946 and was gay. Yeah, for real, man. Tough. Tough. Um, so the officer uh, responded with a string of anti-gay. Sl- this is like in the courtroom, just in during a break. Oh so God. everybody's standing around. Um, so he responds with a string of anti-gay slurs and then tells uh, Dennis Perone he wished he'd shot him dead. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, that's another episode, but, yeah. you know, Dennis Perone, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> that is literally another episode. If, if, <laughs> yeah. if you're not, it, it's, uh, we'll go on with this one. But uh, So as a result, uh, this cop's, uh, testimony was thrown out of court and the charges were lowered. So that's good news. Uh, yeah, seriously. But uh, Dennis still spent six months in prison. In a letter to High Times penned from behind bars, uh, he remained ever optimistic and committed to the cause. And he wrote, uh, watch the light from San Francisco. It will light up the world. Wow. That's so positive. I mean, okay, look at all the things that life has thrown at this guy. You know, uh, he goes to war and sees hell. He comes back, lives his life for a little bit, and, you know, tries to live the way he feels is right, and hell emerges yet again. And still, he has this crazy optimism. I mean, th- that's those circumstances really put a lot of people through the ringer. You know, I think only the most resilient ones made it through and made an impact and they're the ones that we still hear about uh you know and they all had to suffer a lot they had to go to jail for it harvey milk died for it you know that's a crazy thing man that's that's a really intense uh oppositional environment to exist in you know yeah that's why i said at the top like it resonates with me in the times that we're in now of like I think it is gut check time at large. You know, different communities have been going through all different forms of oppression at the hands of this, you know, ultimately unjust uh, state of things. And, you know, reading and learning about Dennis Perone's life and the details of it, mm-hmm. um, made me understand how much he put it on the line Mm. uh how much he uh as you said stood up and other people stood up behind him and all of a sudden we won that's insane yeah shit so let's get through this bullshit and get to the part where we win (laughs) (laughs) absolutely uh so while he's still incarcerated he's planning a campaign for a local ballot initiative uh, that's going to basically instruct San Francisco authorities not to arrest people for growing, transferring, or possessing marijuana. Uh, th- it passes by a wide margin. Like people like pot even back then, mm-hmm. you know, especially in San Francisco. Uh, so uh, after this happens, San Francisco Mayor George Moscone. Uh, instructs the city's police force to ignore minor ca- uh, ignore minor cannabis offenses. Um, but this and many other reforms evaporated on November 27th, 1978, 
the day the mayor and Harvey Milk were assassinated by a homophobic ex-police officer. Dude, that's so crazy. So, yeah, uh, cops are not the good guys in this story. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, It's going to be hard to come up with a great moment in weed history where the cops are the good guys. Can you think of one? (laughs) Not a single one. And I I can't imagine that a single one exists. There's those, like, ah, ah, a a cop once, uh, you know, like, threw my friend's weed away instead of arresting him. Yeah. And that's like a great moment in personal weed history. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, you know, no one's given that cop any medals for saving his time on the paperwork. No, you're right. You know, that cop, not friend of the podcast. Yeah, seriously. Well, not there's not enemy of the podcast. Let's just say you'd be hard pressed to find a cop who's friend of the podcast. (laughs) But anyhow, um, so, you know, that yeah, th- th- that that's an incredibly tragic thing, and I think it illustrates what these guys were up against politically. This is what you got for sticking your neck out, you know. Th- this is the type of violent reaction uh, that people like Harvey Milk or people like Dennis Barone were experiencing. Yeah, I always think of that line from Monty Python: uh, "Now you see the violence inherent in the system." Hmm. Like these are the means by which social main control is maintained not the soft power of you just thinking you're not subject to all this punishment uh but the fact that they do it to people who in their eyes step out of line mm-hmm. um so he he gets out you know um and throughout the 1980s um as the aids epidemic uh spreads and grows more deadly uh, he's working tirelessly to advocate for medical cannabis as a compassionate, palliative response. Mm-hmm. Um, San Francisco's gay community, which he is like at the heart of, you know, per, where where being gay and weed intersect mm-hmm. is Dennis Perone in San Francisco. Those two communities, right? And this is sort of a major intersection that brings about. The 1996-1997 medical cannabis law in California, Prop 215. So, you know, and a lot of people don't realize that is that gay activism, gay rights activism, uh, the AIDS epidemic and cannabis activism all sort of coincided into this powder keg that launched California into the medical cannabis era. Yeah, I mean, if we're looking at this story through the eyes of the gay community there, um, you have this uprising of optimism and power, and we elect uh, the first gay representative to represent our neighborhood. And imagine how that must have felt for people who have, I mean, as long as there's been people, there's been gay people, and as there's little times and places where it's not an oppressive environment and they feel like they're coming into their own and then their leader is assassinated and then this terrible um you know epidemic breaks out um and dennis perone at the center of all of that and cannabis is one of the first people to realize how helpful it is and how important it is to get it to people in need. And he just basically switches his operations over to 
getting as much cannabis to as many people mm-hmm. as possible. Yeah. And speaking of which, another icon of the time that followed much the same methodology, Brownie Mary. There's another episode of Great Moments in Weed History about Brownie Mary. So uh, click around later and you'll find it. <laughs> um, but yeah, they were close friends and, and allies in this in this whole uh, time and place. Mm. Um, so, of course, uh, he's doing everything he can to help uh, ill people. So what happens next? Who comes in next? Who are we queuing? Who mm. can't stand that this guy is going to help people who have the man? Disease? I think it's the man. The man making a, a second appearance here. I feel like he's going to keep popping up in this one. Yeah, like a bad turd in a toilet that's not flushing right. Yeah, seriously. Ooh, that was that was like a noir. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, yeah, it's raining, raining thicker than a than a hot coal on a. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys always are kind of losing yeah. their train of thought, though. So, but anyhow, things are yeah. about to get shitty again. Things are about to get shitty again. So, on January 27th, 1990, uh, the narcs fucking come calling again. This time, 10 officers armed with slem- sledgehammers uh, performed a no knock raid on Dennis Perone's home in the Castro. As they searched his apartment for drugs, he sought to protect his longtime partner, Jonathan West, who was gravely ill with AIDS. Uh, After the raid recovered only four ounces of cannabis, one of the officers put his boot on West's neck and taunted him with anti-gay jokes. Then they hauled Dennis Perone off to booking, uh, leaving his bedridden partner alone and terrified. Jeez, man. The levels of cruelty, you know, and and the, the levels of just domination. And for what, you know, this is really just anti-gay sentiment. You know, this is really just homophobia manifesting in some way. You know what I mean? That is just sick. And yet I feel like based on the character of Dennis Perone, he's going to face this situation with resilience as he has so many others. Yeah, he absolutely does. And yeah, you just the cruelty in 15 years of writing about this, especially back in the day. It's made me pessimistic about humanity in some sense, Mm. like the depth of cruelty, like taking people's kids away, all this. Like, it's so hard to fathom that people who could do this. Um, But here we are. Well, he's not going to stand for it, obviously. Mm hmm. Um, so he's, he's in his holding cell and he's thinking of his partner and he vows in his mind, he pictures this place, uh, as he describes it, where anybody suffering with serious illness can come, they can access cannabis, they can use it together. And he has to create this place for the community is his vision. Um, but he is of course still, uh, facing arrest. Mm. You know, he's still in a holding cell and he could be facing all these charges. Um, So Jonathan, his partner, uh, lived just long enough to testify at the trial and say what happened. Um, Frail and in obvious physical agony, his story moved the judge to throw out the case and admonish the police. That's great. All right. So one judge has their wigs on straight 
uh, in the San Francisco court. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's good. But, look, you know, it you shouldn't have to wait for all this kind of bullshit to happen before admonishing the police on that shit. You know, judges should just freely admonish the police all the time whenever they feel like it. It should be default admonish, and then you have to do something to de-admonish. Yeah, seriously. But yeah, man, wow. So, you know, the natural enemy of any stoner throughout so much of American history being, you know, the cops. Here, the cops are at their absolute worst when it comes to someone really trying to push forward the agenda of cannabis liberalization, right? I mean, it goes to show, like, you know, why the enforcement to this level? You know what I mean? On on something that's seemingly so benign. Look, you can assume that the San Francisco PD of what year is it? Um, This last raid is 1990. 1990. Okay, you think that the police in San Francisco in 1990 would have a lot better things to do than to, you know, target and marginalize a gay activist who happens to have some cannabis in his home and assault a AIDS patient. You know what I mean? Uh, fuck the cops. You fuck, know? The, fuck those cops. I'm going to take a quick poll of our listeners. 100% say yeah. fuck those cops. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And fuck the cops. I'm going to me. Beats fucking soft. <laughs> uh, so uh, he gets out of the uh, he gets out of the trial. He's free person again, and he decides um, I'm going to open the San Francisco Cannabis Buyers Club. Right. So this is this is kind of some legendary shit. The San Francisco Cannabis Buyers Club was kind of like the first. Uh, the first cannabis club in California, right? Yeah, uh, and certainly on anything related to the scale, um, you know, and I would say it's pretty well acknowledged as like the first collective dispensary. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this is well before Prop Two Fifteen uh, is the law of the land. So, you know, what what he's been engaging in is civil disobedience. You know, the whole cannabis, whether you think of it that way or not. If you're smoking weed and it's not legal, you're you're engaging in civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Um, he just took it a little further. So the San Francisco Buyers Club is uh, he's still technically he's he's risking arrest, uh, but the city uh, has kind of given him tacit approval to do this. And basically, in this place, you can you can get weed. Yeah, you, uh, some people are getting it for free. Some people are getting it at a discount um, based on, you know, economic need. Uh, you know, his goal is getting it uh, primarily AIDS patients, but cancer patients. Anybody who can get a doctor's note can go to the club. Um, if you are poor and have AIDS, you will get it for free. If you are, are able to pay, that subsidizes other people. Right, right. Um, so that's sort of the system. The menu had organic cannabis, edibles, tinctures, uh, topicals. They sold health food. So it's like a modern day dispensary, you know, yeah. or like a health, you know, sort of like a health food and cannabis place. Yeah, I felt. I, I, I imagine it. It felt more 
festive and hippie-ish and freewheeling than like sort of your modern retail sure. dispensary experience. Right. But in terms of the menu, you're looking at similar items. Yeah. And, you know, from really great growers. Um, he was tapped in and, right. uh, you know, he's right at the heart of everything. So he was getting really choice cannabis. That was the other thing it was known for. Ah. And, and organic, you know, so especially important if you're ill. Right, right, right. Um, and you can hang out there and blaze. Right. So it's actually like, you know, becomes a little bit of a venue for the cannabis community there. Yeah. So he says uh, marijuana was part of it, uh, but a big part of healing is not being alone. Mm-hmm. And it was really back when he was imagining his partner while he was in the holding cell stuck alone he realized all of these ill people it's so isolating to be ill Mm -hmm. and he said we need a place where people can be together um so it also serves as a hub for the um like the movement to legalize he's having all kinds of political meetings there right so this is kind of where all the ideas gestate Right before actually manifesting in the very real cannabis legislation that took shape here in the 90s. Yeah, and this is why they don't want weed heads to come out and hang out together because we're going to figure out how to, you know, get rid of the shitty people in charge. Yeah, seriously. And I mean, that kind of, you know, uh, if you were wondering why the authorities are always so adamant about controlling cannabis, I mean, you know, Despite myriad, you know, thinly veiled excuses, you really get to the heart of it. And cannabis makes people think more than the government wants you to think or more than people that are controlling you or relying on your spending habits want you to think. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or simply to question things. Yeah. 100%. Like, uh, you know, why are these people in charge anyway? Yeah, exactly. What does man. money mean? Mm-hmm. Can a dessert also have barbecue sauce on it? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I guess if it was like a honey, like yeah. a lot of honey in it. that It could work. A little tangy, you know, sweet. Send all recipes to us at care of greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. We'll try it out. We'll definitely try it out. Um, so the San Francisco Buyers Club served as a hub for the ascending cannabis movement's political campaigns. The earliest efforts to draft what became Prop 215 all happened at the Buyers Club, uh, where Perone brought together medical cannabis patients and providers with academics, politicos, and activists who were all eager to join forces on this uh, historic effort. All right. And, you know, now with adult use cannabis in California becoming the standard in a lot of ways replacing or outmoding the old methods of getting a prescription getting medical cannabis here it's going to be forgotten that one of the freest times for cannabis in modern history was california right after prop 215 you know all the way up until just recently uh when literally anybody who needed medical cannabis didn't have to go around convincing people to let them have it they could pretty much just have it you know and that's a really beautiful thing i think uh that now things are going to change quite a bit and 
not for the better because the more control the authorities have over this thing, uh, you know, the worse it gets. But as far as Dennis Perone goes, he conceived of a dream and he really achieved it. I mean, this is the guy who wrote Prop 215, essentially. Yeah, uh, with other people. But mm-hmm. yeah, and to get to your point, something very so so sort of these people around the buyers club um are the initial core group that come up with the idea that push for it that start to get it on the ballot um uh, and then at a certain point they have they bring in fundraisers mm. you know it costs a lot of money to get a some enough signatures to get something on the ballot and then you have to run the campaign right. and one of the pushes between sort of the original activists and the uh, money people, for want of a better word, you know, philanthropists, but money people, uh, was this issue of Dennis Perone wanted it to say for any, you know, for cancer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or for any condition for which a doctor feels cannabis may be beneficial. And the money people said they're going to go to the press and say this is you know, going to be used to give people medicine if they have insomnia or headaches. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, it works for both of those things. Yeah. And uh, he pushed really hard to maintain that language. And that language is the difference between a very small number of people who desperately need cannabis having access and as you said, essentially everyone having access, everyone in California having access to cannabis. And that was really, yeah. really a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, look, the shortcoming of a lot of states that are establishing medical cannabis now is that they limit the access to medical cannabis to only people who are terminally ill in some cases, or only people who are very, very severely ill. And... That's a very weird thing to say, oh, this treats a lot of things and a lot of people need it. Let's only give it to the ones that are over a certain marker of sick. You know what I mean? Like, oh, are you sick enough to require this medicine? Okay, here, you can have it. So the person that's just under the marker of being sick enough to, you know, say like, you know, what if someone has fibromyalgia and they're in constant pain? And they're suffering all the time and, and medical cannabis could help that. But they're like, well, you don't have cancer and you're not, you know, so sorry. Like, that's a really sick thing. It's like we're discovering this is a medicine so that everyone can have it. You know what I mean? It's literally never killed anyone. Well, that's the thing is how safe it is. Yeah. Now, if you're talking about a very, very dangerous medicine, then you might say, OK, well, it's it's some last. Mm-hmm. chance shit you don't you know but that's not cannabis yeah. cannabis should be the first thing you try for almost everything uh whether you're sick or not <laughs> yeah i think that's kind of our policy on the show it's the first thing we try yeah yeah seriously and you know and again to you know to think of it as something you consume for your health outside of you know uh the conventions of pharmaceutical medicine you know, it's like, you know, it's literally like you try to eat right and, you know, put nutrition into your body. You put cannabinoids into your body because it's going to help you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Actually, during the campaign, mm-hmm. uh, Dennis Perone was quoted. Uh, 
in a sort of offhand remark as saying uh, all cannabis use is medicinal. Yeah. And and his opponents, the opponents tried to make a lot of hay with that and, and pin that on him as, oh, this isn't really about medicine. But science has proven him completely correct. Mm-hmm. So um, in 1996, Prop 215 makes the ballot. Uh, you know, Dennis Perone and his core group uh, raise the money. They bring in the philanthropists. They get the signatures. They run the campaign. Um, who do you think is going to show up? The cops. Getting to be a cliche now with them. Yeah, seriously. Um, so what happens? So in response, uh, just months before voters decide on Prop 215, 100 heavily armed police officers raided the Buyers Club, oh, man. busting open the front door with a battering ram. Seems unnecessary. Uh, well, you're facing a room full of deathly ill AIDS patients. You know, you need about 100 armed cops who who are in the same place that they've been in every day for years. Yeah. So it's not like you have to catch them in the act. You could have walked up, knocked on the door, and said, hey. Yeah. You know, I mean, these people are fucking crazy. It's all just theatrics, yeah. And just uh, rage. Um, so they do this right before the election, and in their feverish cop minds, they're like, once they see us, you know, kicking the doors in on sick people, they'll vote for what we want. Uh, but it backfires because people are not complete fucking assholes. Uh, that's in- nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the end. Yeah, that's I, nice. I think we could call that just a great moment in history. Yeah. People weren't complete fucking assholes. And, and, and how did they react? I mean. So Prop 215 passes by a wide margin and a lot of people who were sort of undecided get pushed in the pro column because they you know see this for what it is yeah um and that from there you know um is really was i think the the biggest victory in the cannabis movement was prop 215 it was foundational to everything uh that came after it and um you know it took a lot of people doing a lot of things. Uh, Dennis Perone, really, I think, chief among them. You know, he he really um, led that movement and and put his own ass on the line to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think as the legal political environment around cannabis changes in places like California and all over the country, all over the world, you know, we're in danger of forgetting that it took a lot of gusto and a lot of balls and a lot of toughness to really break through those initial political barriers against cannabis in places like California, which is one of the front lines for cannabis policy in the world today. And really, we have a lot of people to thank and a lot of people to salute for getting us this far. And... Bean, you and I are very lucky that we got to smoke weed with this one. Rest in peace, our dude, Dennis Perone. And that about wraps it up for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. 
Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a nice little review if you're so inclined. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and SoundCloud at at GMIWH podcast. And please give us a tweet or a post if you like the show. And with that, we'll close it out. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. that's the show folks thanks so much for listening and if you stuck around this long please consider supporting us on patreon you can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and that would really help us as we research write edit and publish a new episode every weedness day great moments in weed history is written produced and performed by me david beanstock aka bean Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.